The uh, reading this morning is an excerpt from the Divinity School address of uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson at Harvard in the, I think it's 1838, it says in your bulletin. In this refulgent summer, it has been a luxury to draw the breath of life. The grass grows, the buds burst, the meadow is spotted with the fire and gold in the tent of flowers. The air is full of birds and sweet with the breath of the pine, the balm of Gilead, and the new hay. Night brings no gloom to the heart with its welcome shade. Through the transparent darkness, the stars pour their almost spiritual rays. Man under them seems a young child, and his huge globe just a toy. The cool night bathes the world as with a river and prepares his eyes again for the crimson dawn. The mystery of nature was never displayed more happily. The corn and the wine have been freely dealt to all creatures, and the never broken silence with which the old beauty, uh, old bounty goes forward has not yielded yet one word of explanation. One is constrained to respect the perfection of this world in which our senses converse. How wide, how rich. What invitation from every property it gives to every faculty of man in its fruitful soils, in its navigable seas, in its mountains of metal and stone, in its forests of all woods, in its animals, in its chemical ingredients, in the powers and path of light, heat, attraction, and life. It is well worth the pith and heart of great men to subdue and enjoy it. The planters, the mechanics, the inventors, the astronomers, the builders of cities, and the captains, history delights to honor. But when the mind opens and reveals the laws which traverse this universe, and make things what they are, then shrinks the great world at once into a mere illustration and fable of this mind. What am I? And what is? Ask the human spirit with a curiosity New Kindle, but never to be quenched. Behold these outrunning laws, which our imperfect apprehension can see 
tend this way and that way, but never come quite full circle. Behold these infinite relationships, so like, so unlike, many, yet one. I would study, I would know, I would admire forever. These works of thoughts have been the entertainments of the human spirit for all ages. A more sweet, secret, and overpowering beauty appears to man when his heart and mind open to the sentiment of virtue. Then he is instructed in what is above him. He learns that his being is without bounds, that to the good, to the perfect, he is born. Low as, his, low as he now lies in evil and weakness. That which he venerates is still his own, though he has not realized it yet. In the early 19th century, Unitarians formally split off from our Calvinist congregational cousins, rejecting the doctrine of the Trinity, 
was just one way in which Unitarians became theologically incompatible with the more conservative Congregationalists. The Unitarians also insisted that revelation and interpretation were ongoing projects, that we needed to be open to new truths as they emerged or were discovered through scholarship. Now, this made Unitarianism ripe for theological controversy. Over the years, many people have challenged Unitarians and later Unitarian Universalists to wrestle with their new and different theological interpretations. Transcendentalists, free religionists, humanists, universalist Christians, neo-pagans, and more. And each time, the wider religious movement was asked, can you still believe this and be part of our faith? And each time, the answer came back, yes. Now, that first theological controversy happened in the 1830s and 1840s, when the Transcendentalists emerged as an important school of thought in the United States. The Transcendentalists were a loose group of ministers, writers, and intellectuals, and social reformers who gathered in mid-19th century America, mostly around Concord, Massachusetts. Most of them were Unitarians, and you don't learn that part in high school history class. Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, Margaret Fuller, the Alcott family, Bronson, Louisa, and others, Elizabeth Palmer Peabody, Theodore Parker, James Freeman Clark, and others formed the Transcendentalist circles. Most people are taught to think of Transcendentalism as a literary movement. In reality, though, Transcendentalism was a theological movement in the United States. Transcendentalism, you see, was mostly meant as a reformation of Unitarianism, the first of many challenges to the rigidity of the Unitarian Church. Jeff Wilson, writing in the UU World magazine, writes, Battling conservative Calvinist orthodoxy, Unitarians had staked out a place for liberal religion in the new American Republic, including a belief that the individual conscience in religious matters was paramount. But while revolutionary in theory, in practice, Unitarianism often relied on a dry dissection of the Bible for its arguments, intended at time to de degenerate into formalism, lacking a sense of spiritual wonder. Emerson most famously described his fellow Unitarians as corpse cold and wondered if they had ever lived a genuine day in their lives. Wilson continues. Beginning in the 1830s, a younger generation of Unitarians sought fresh inspiration in strange, exciting ideas from German, French, and British scholarship on the Bible and on biblical language. European scholars were developing new methods for looking at religion, from Frederick Schleiermacher's belief that religion was an inner feeling of complete dependence on God, to Coleridge's differentiation of insightful feeling insightful reason from discursive understanding. The most important of these ideas, which became the central tenet of the rising transcendentalists, was that human beings contained within themselves 
a mysterious internal principle that guided them towards religious truth, an intuitive capacity more profound and reliable than any scripture, ecclesiastical tradition, or institution. This spiritual sixth sense pointed toward transcendental truths, such as the universal brotherhood of all people, the ability of the human individual to commune directly with the divine, and the presence of the sacred in the manifestations of the natural world. Now, each of the transcendentalists that we know today could merit several sermons individually on their contributions to theology and society. We could spend hours just talking about their social contributions to American society. Most of the transcendentalists you see were ardent abolitionists. They articulated social reforms as wide-ranging as the introduction of kindergarten, the equality of women and men, and civil disobedience against war. They argued forcefully against a culture of consumerism and greed, a sermon in and of itself. They also had their problems, however, chief among them a lack of an appreciation for relationship and community in their often self-centered theology. Theologically, they did as many wonderful things. They expanded Americans' horizons eastward through their study of Asian religions, most notably Hinduism and Buddhism, about which Americans knew almost nothing in the 1830s and 40s. Theodore Parker most famously asked Unitarians to examine what in Christianity was transient and what was permanent. What will disappear and what will stay? Parker argued that the specificities of religious dogma, doctrine, ritual, and creed were all transient, that none of them would stand the test of time. The great truths, he saw them, the permanent truths, were the love of God, the love for our fellow humans, and a recognition of the sacred soul in every individual those he called permanent. James Freeman Clark argued forcefully that we should understand and appreciate all of the religions of the world, and he insisted that the entire history and teachings of each of the world's religions should be studied and not abandoned, as so many transcendentalists had suggested. Among Unitarians, though, Clark was most famous for his five points of the new theology, new as opposed to the old Calvinist theology that he was battling against. Clark wrote, among that, the very transcendentalist notion of the progress of mankind onward and upward forever. That was a very transcendentalist notion that each of us makes progress in life and in our spirits always and forever. Today, however, I'd like to spend some time focusing on the transcendentalist notion that each of us has the ability to experience the sacred directly. That name, transcendentalists, was originally a pejorative term given to them, and it comes from that notion that spirituality transcends the intellectual, that it transcends the physical, that spirituality comes primarily through intuition and feeling. Most transcendentalists would have said that 
Real spirituality, true spirituality, comes only through intuition and feeling and cannot ever be approached through the intellect, through reason, through study, or tradition. Some, however, called for a more balanced approach, a one, one that I think that we can appreciate looking back through time. The transcendentalists believe that our direct experience of the spirit called each and every one of us to the true religion of a connection with God, a connection with something greater than ourselves, the true religion of love for our fellow humans, the true religion of unceasing progress, always making ourselves better. That notion was trans translated years later when process theologians started writing about a rational spirituality, and they wrote that all beings are lured constantly toward the good. Alfred North Whitehead, my favorite process theologian, famously wrote that what he believed God was, was that force in the universe that pulls us toward the good, that constantly pulls us, entices us, lures us towards being better. That's a, a direct notion from the transcendentalist understanding of spirituality. Margaret Fuller, whose words opened our service and whose 200th anniversary we are celebrating this year, was an important transcendentalist as well. And Barry Andrews, in his introduction to a book of Margaret Fuller's words, writes, More than anything, Fuller was guided by mystical visions that came at her in pivotal moments of her life. I was not without hours of deep spiritual insight and conscious of the inheritance of vast powers, Fuller wrote. I touched the secret of the universe and by that touch was invested with a talismanic power which has never left me, though it sometimes lies dormant for a long while. In these moments of vision, Margaret Fuller saw that life goes on an undulating course. She wrote, sometimes on the hill, sometimes in the valley, and that the lesson of such insights is to never forget the hill prospect when we find ourselves in a valley, to know in times of darkness that the sun will always rise again. The transcendentalist's assertion that each of us was capable of experiencing spirituality intuitively, directly, as by virtue of our humanity, was very challenging to the religions of their day. You see, conservative religions of their day insisted, as they do still to this day, that a relationship with God, a relationship with the transcendent, a relationship with something greater than ourselves was only and is only possible through intermediaries, beginning with Jesus as an intermediary and continuing with priests and ministers who interpret sacred teachings for their people. So they were threatened by that notion that we didn't need someone else doing the interpretation for us. We had all we needed to do the interpretation right within us. 
the liberal religions were threatened too. The Unitarians, in fact, insisted that true religion could be found through the rigorous academic intellectual examination of scripture and theological thought. Many Unitarians insist that to this day. But they cut off those without serious formal education from the experience of the Spirit. They cut off those who felt things from their understanding of true religion. So the, the transcendentalist notion that we feel religion as much as think it was threatening to Unitarians who were invested in this rational approach to spirituality. The transcendentalists threatened people of all faiths who insisted that religion and spirituality were tied to particular places, churches, mosques, temples, synagogues, particular places in whose walls spirituality happened. The transcendentalists, you see, added to our American notion the understanding that spirituality happens everywhere. And that walk in the winter woods and a year living in a cabin on Walden were equal places for spirituality to happen to any religious edifice that could be built specifically for that purpose. And transcendentalists were responsible for adding to the American notion that time spent on a mountaintop or walking down the street could be just as spiritual as time spent in a pew or listening to a sermon. Today, we might take those things as a given. We might understand in our lives that spirituality happens in many different places at many different times. We might understand that we think things and we feel them too, and that both the intuitive, the feeling, and the rational, the intellectual, are necessary for us to have a connection with something greater than ourselves. We might take that as a given in 21st century America, but in 1838, when Ralph Waldo Emerson preached those things to the senior class at Harvard, they were shocked. He caused quite a stir. They were shocked that he could possibly stand up there and tell them that he remembers sermons in, in which the only thing that approached reality, the real experience of humans, was looking out the window and seeing the snow. They were shocked because the minister that he described giving those sermons was renowned for his intellectual rigor, for his seriousness of thought, for his academic study of scripture. And Emerson dared stand up there in the, the seminary at Harvard, no less, to ministers who were studying, um, people who were studying for the ministry and say, your ministry has to have something to do with the real lives of the people in your pews. And if it doesn't, it's not worth anything. Emerson said that and they were shocked. He caused waves. Waves so big that eventually Emerson, unfortunately, felt called to leave his post as a Unitarian minister because he couldn't, in good faith, continue to do the things that his congregation was asking him to do. He was called to think and to feel and to write, and that's why we know Emerson for his literary contributions more than for his theological ones. 
But today we take those things as a given. We celebrate Emerson and Thoreau. We don't understand that there wasn't necessarily room for them in the very congregations that we embrace today as ours all those years ago. They created a controversy. A controversy that I might say they won because we take all those things as a given today. And so I ask you to reflect this morning. How would you describe your own spiritual experiences? How would you describe your own experience that you are connected to something greater than yourself? That's how I define spiritual experience. And so if you struggle with that word, and I know a lot of you do, that's the way I ask you to think about it. Where have you had those experiences? How did they feel to you when you were having them? And what do they call you to do? If you were to listen to your intuition, if you were to listen to your heart, if you were to listen to that still, small voice within, what is it calling you to do? How is it calling you to be a better person? Today, our Unitarian Universalist theology has embraced transcendentalist thought. Emerson and Thoreau and Fuller and Clark and Parker would probably enjoy Unitarian Universalism of the 21st century much more than they enjoyed Unitarianism of the early 19th. They would open our hymnals and see that the very first thing in the official list of sources from which we claim to draw our living tradition is the direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder affirmed in all cultures, which moves us to a renewal of the spirit and an openness to the forces that create and uphold life. The very first of our sources, they'd see themselves in that because they're who it comes from. So today I ask you to think, what is it that moves you to a renewal of your spirit? What is it that inspires you to an openness to the forces that create and uphold life? And what is it that you need to do in your own lives, lives to access the mystery and wonder that abound in our universe. It's interesting to me to think that in 1838, this theology was controversial. It was earth-shattering to their co-religionists in their time. It's more interesting to me to think that our Unitarian forebears almost rejected it completely, out of hand. No thank you, form your own congregation. And in this season of gratitude, I think it's good to be thankful that our theological ancestors gave it another look. That ultimately, they said yes when they were asked to widen their theological circle just a little bit more. We would not have the pluralistic free faith that we have today if they had not said yes again and again and again. And for that, on this day, I am thankful. Blessed be.